Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. I long deeply for us as a church to live out our values, to commit to our mission, and to advance your kingdom here in South Minneapolis. So I pray for grace, for me as I speak, for your people as they hear, and for your spirit to um, do only what you, Holy Spirit, can do, which is to convict and to encourage and to clarify and to inspire. Do all the things, Holy Spirit, that you purpose this morning. We come and say, welcome here, work among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On April 12, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King was roughly arrested in Birmingham and uh, spent the next, um, next several days in detainment in the prison. And a few days into his detainment, um, one of his allies and friends smuggled him in a newspaper so that he could see what was going on in the world outside. And he wasn't given much food or much light, but in this cell, he read the newspaper, which had an article calling for unity among the churches, especially the churches in the South, to band together and to oppose his program of nonviolent action. And on the margins of the newspaper, he scratched, pulling from writers throughout several thousand years of history and the scriptures itself, the most influential letter of the 21st or the 20th century. Letter from a Birmingham jail. Let me read a piece of it to you. Every day, I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned out to outright disgust. Man, he was a prophet, right? Perhaps I have once again been too optimistic. Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and the world? Perhaps I must turn by faith to the inner spiritual church, the church within the church, as the true ecclesia, the Greek word for gathering or church, and the hope of the world. And he goes on in a few sentences to describe the noble, courageous people who mark this true ecclesia. And he says that they have acted in the faith that right defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. Their witness has been the spiritual salt that preserved the true meaning of the gospel in troubled times. They have carved a tunnel of hope through the dark mountain of disappointment. God help me today. We live in a different time, but an equally troubled time. We're remembering leaders like Dr. King who have gone before us is so essential because they point to the reality that there always is within the church, the church, 
And my longing for us as a church would be that to be that true ecclesia, that true spiritual inner church that puts faith into action and that shines light into the darkness of disappointment in our society. And that is the very salt and light that is needed in this community on the south side, the Twin Cities as a whole, our nation, even beyond that. How long for us to be the church? That's what I've been preaching the last few weeks. For us to be the church that captures the true gospel and to long for gospel change, to hunger for gospel transformation, and to not rest until the the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done is pressed into all the nooks and crannies of our lives. And then for us to be captivated by a vision of the future, a vision where many, many people are alive to God are awakened to the very presence and power of King Jesus and then start to live all of life as if Jesus is with them and his power is at work. That's the, that's the, that's the vision for where we want to go and what we want to see God do. And this morning, I get to tell us how we get there. The mission. If the vision is the why and sort of the big picture of where we're headed, the, the mission is the what and the how do we get to realize that vision. So here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to walk through our mission statement, phrase by phrase, and I'm going to do something that I don't usually do, which is sort of skim off the top of the scriptures. I'm not going to teach one passage word by word, line by line. I want to sort of give you all of the influences from the scriptures to, that come into this, and there's plenty more, but come into this statement. And if you're wondering, My goal has been for these to be logged into our minds, for us to know them. That that statement that we want people to be awakened to the presence and power of King Jesus, I want that to be registered for you, for that to be like on lockdown, you know that. And I would love for this statement to become familiar as well. We exist to multiply diverse communities of disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. That is our heartbeat. That's our very mission as a church. We exist to multiply diverse communities of disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. So let's go, all right? We exist to multiply. If you've got a Bible, you can open it and you can be flipping with me. If not, we're going to be on the screen today too, okay? This is John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I am the vine, verse 5 says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's what I see. Whatever is alive multiplies. Whatever is alive multiplies. It is in the very nature and design of life, whether that's plant life, whether that's human life, whether that's animal life, whatever is alive bears fruit. That's what Jesus is getting at here. It's in our very nature. And if we, family of God, stay alive to God, which is to be vitally connected to him, Jesus, as a branch is to the vine, there will be fruit that appears. We will multiply as a church. Our impact in the city will increase. Our numbers will grow. Spiritual formation will happen. People will experience healing. People will experience change. Fruit will come if we abide 
and remain connected to Jesus. But there is a threat for us. There's a threat for us as a church that wants to multiply. And there's some churches that don't, but we do. Because Jesus wants us to. And Jesus will empower us to. But here's the, here's the threat. There could be no fruit among us. There could be no fruit. And that might happen, probably not from inability, because God's hardwired it into anything that's alive to multiply. But that might happen from inward thinking. We might be more concerned with self. We might be more concerned with a place for us, and we become less concerned with hospitality towards others, less concerned with Jesus and his glory, less concerned with the advancement of the kingdom of God. We could have no fruit because we turn inward, even though God has given the very ability to multiply and bear fruit to us. The other thing that could happen is not that we have no fruit, but that we have what I call false fruit. Much of Christianity in our country today is concerned primarily with popularity. Let's be real. Like the Christian church in our day, in our country, is concerned with the crowd, concerned with the gathering being bigger, with the movement being popular and exciting. And listen to me, I love movement. Like, I'd love for a movement to start among our church. I would love for things to pick up steam. I would love for more and more people to come and to hear the good news, more and more people to join with us in the mission God's called us to. I'm not, and Jesus wasn't afraid of the crowds either. Jesus had so many crowds pressing around him, he couldn't even walk into a city. He couldn't even eat. There was so many people flooded around him to hear him teach, to see him heal, that they pushed him out into the desert places. They couldn't even stand on the land. He'd have to like get into a boat so they wouldn't push on him. And then he could speak from the water to the, to the beach. Jesus ministered to the crowds, but friends, he changed the world by a few. The crowds were not the fruit. The disciples, the apostles... Those who traveled with Jesus, walked with Jesus, saw his way of life, who followed his teachings, they weren't concerned with signs and wonders. They they were concerned with Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they followed him. We long for God to change our city and beyond through a few of us. And we will welcome the crowds, but we want to see the fruit of disciples who follow Jesus. So let me ask you, Are you vitally connected to Jesus? Do you remain in him? Are you alive to God and increasingly so, such that your life will bear fruit for Jesus and for the kingdom? It will be to his glory and it will be for your joy. He has promised us that those who abide in him will bear fruit. We exist to multiply. But not just that, we exist to multiply diverse Communities of disciples. Look at me at, with Mark chapter. Look at look with me at Mark chapter three. This is verse thirteen. And they went up, and he went up on the mountain, and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanarges, which means sons of thunder or sons of rage, 
And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I'm, I'm going to be square with you. Sometimes the lists in the Bibles don't seem that important. But this list is really important for one reason this morning. Many reasons in, in general. But one reason this morning. Jesus got up on the mountain. He went to pray. He sought the Father. And guess who he chose? He chose a diverse crew of disciples. He did not choose people from all the same social background. He did not choose all people from the same philosophical or political viewpoint. Look at, look at this here. Okay, James and John are fishermen. They're blue collar. So are Simon and uh, Andrew. Matthew was a tax collector, the other gospels tell us, which means he had been skimping off all the taxes to the Roman government and become incredibly wealthy and also despised by anyone who was a true Jew. So, despised by those who are true Jew, meaning Simon the Zealot, whose whole purpose in life was to overthrow the Roman government, would have meant he probably would have been likely to stab Matthew if he would have encountered him on the street before meeting Jesus. Completely opposed viewpoints. Jesus says, hey, let's roll together. Jesus desired a diverse community of disciples even in his 12 apostles. And only he is the one who can bring that kind of diversity into unity for a good purpose. And listen, the differences among these disciples, and I, I just got to imagine, like, he's sending two of them out by two, and they're going and telling towns about what's going on. I got to imagine he's like, hey, Matthew, hey, <laughs> hey Simon and Zealot, like, um, you guys go together, sort that out. Let me know how it goes. It's because their differences made fertile ground for character to develop. Like, Jesus wasn't just about giving information to these people. Like, he was about transforming their whole lives. And the very differences that these disciples had contributed to that. Discipleship requires diversity. Otherwise, We'll just assume all of those around us like the same preferences that we like, and we won't have any chance to practice humility and serve one another. And I mean, how can we follow the one another commands of Scripture unless the other is in our community? Diversity is at the heart of Jesus' disciple-making plan, but there are threats to this. This whole aspect of our mission is threatened by our relentless pursuit of comfort Man, do we love comfort. Friendship and fellowship that's diverse is uncomfortable at times. Or at the very least, like you encounter things that are unfamiliar. Which, if you're a disciple of Jesus, a disciple means learner, and you're committed to sort of growing in his ways, man, the unfamiliar and the uncomfortable is no big deal. You're like, I'm in, the, I'm, I'm in this to learn some things. Like, let's go. But if your definition of discipleship is something other than that, then anything that threatens your comfort or your preferences will be an opportunity for you to bounce. But Jesus has called us to forgo comfort for something far, far better and more satisfying. Efficiency is another threat, at least in the short term. Right? We as Americans need this because sometimes friendship and fellowship that's diverse is messy. Sometimes it's slow. But 
it is far more effective in creating the followers of Jesus that the Lord wants. Far more effective. So it is more efficient in the long run, but Jesus wasn't interested in microwaving anything. Like, Jesus is the one who's, like, got the smoker. He's got the slow cooker. He's like, I'm going to spend three years with these guys, these 12, and then a whole host of families, and, and especially leading women who followed him around and ministered to him and alongside of him. He knew that it wasn't going to happen quick. Can you imagine, day by day, three straight years walking around with him? That was his discipleship plan. It wasn't nuke him in the microwave and get him out and go. Here's the truth that comforts my soul when it comes to pursuing a diverse community. The first is that the gospel itself creates this kind of community. The good news of Jesus creates this kind of community, and you see that clearly throughout the New Testament and in the early church, that there was this power at work, this grace at play that bridged the normal dividing lines in society and brought a unified people together across economic and across ethnic lines. Jesus had a way of unifying that didn't deflate diversity, but put it on display. And I think that's because Diversity is in the very nature of God himself, right? Like, it gives me great hope that the God of the gospel is diversity in unity on a mission, right? It is, God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one being, three different persons. Diversity in unity on a mission is what he is, and why would the church not then reflect that, and why would we not? It's at his very heart and very core of who he is. So let me ask you, how diverse are your friendships? How about your dinner table, your text thread, your social media app of choice? Dr. King said that he was appalled that this hour, 11 a.m., was the most segregated hour of the week in his time. And the sad truth is it still is. And my prayer is that we would be doing something about that. My prayer is that we would be excited in the Lord uniting a diverse people on a mission together for his glory. We exist to multiply diverse communities of disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. Look with me at Matthew 28, which we read. This is Jesus appearing resurrected and saying that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And then he gives his disciples the challenge, the charge to go and make disciples. Here's what we see here. Christianity is a team sport. Christianity isn't an individual support sport. Christianity is a team sport. Think about it. The New Testament says family, Body, cluster of grapes, living stones built together. Every metaphor, every picture for the church is communal. Everything points to the reality that discipleship best happens in community. You can't live as a disciple alone. You can't grow as a disciple alone. Community is the context for discipleship. And listen, friends, discipleship is all about Jesus. This is what the early church got, and they got that it was about Jesus in different contexts, right? So their pattern, this is from Acts chapter three, which, 2, which I think is on the screen, was to gather in community in two different ways. They would gather together. Let me open it up and read it with you. 
they gathered together in the temple courts. Amber, is this up there? Should I read it there? Yeah. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers were a formal gathering of prayer, attending the temple together. So the community of the church gathered together as a whole group. And then, flip to the next slide, they devoted themselves also, look at the highlights here, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, which happened in homes, breaking of bread in their homes. They received their food with glad, glad and generous hearts, gathering together in the temple, gathering together corporately for things like prayer and teaching, and then scattering into homes and living life together. The early church was convinced community was essential to the Christian life. And I'm convinced it's essential for our mission to go forward as a church. Discipleship we see in this passage, the Great Commission, is all about Jesus. Right? They worshiped Jesus. They submitted to Jesus' authority. They received identity from Jesus. Jesus, that's what baptism is. It's naming an identity into the name of the triune God and his family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They observed and obeyed the teachings and the commandments of Jesus. They were sent by Jesus, and Jesus promised to be with them wherever they would go. And if you got a shout in you, that's where you say amen, because Jesus is the key to discipleship. That's what he's leaving his disciples with. The mandate was clear, make disciples who make disciples. And our mission is clear, make disciples in community. Listen, there's threats to making disciples. There's the cost of it, like it, it costs time, it costs love, it costs prayer. I mean, like at my house, it costs cleaning up scraps of food on the floor, it, it costs cleaning up, it costs relational investment and emotional energy. Discipleship costs something of you. And there's also the risk of it. I mean, sometimes you might seek to encourage someone spiritually. You might spend your time and your energy investing in them. You might be helping them learn how to follow Jesus. And listen, it might go south. I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive and present with them. And some doubted. There's a risk in disciple making. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus did rise from death, and he does have all authority. Somebody say power. power. He is promised to be with us always. Somebody say presence. I'm not making this stuff up, y'all, right? The presence and power of King Jesus, right? That is at the heart of what we're after, right? And we need to see that discipleship does not involve perfection. Not involve perfection. It runs off grace. Like we, we and I myself am a person in process, and we are learning and seeking to multiply people in process who would learn then to obey Jesus in all areas of life, in all that he commands us. It runs off grace, not perfection. But here's the, here's the caveat. It runs off initiative, not passivity. Where there is no leadership, there is no discipleship. Discipleship don't just happen when people get together. It happens as someone says, hey, I don't know everything but I know a couple things. Come along with me as we follow Jesus together. I've learned a few things how to follow Jesus. Come follow me as I follow Christ. That's not an arrogant claim. That's a gracious claim, an invitation to others to walk with you. Listen, we started this church with one community centered on Jesus. 
and we can't meet that community in my living room on a Sunday morning. And we are going to start three communities centered on Jesus next month. And Lord willing, we're going to start five communities in the fall centered on Jesus. And we are going to to multiply diverse communities of disciples. And the mission of God will go forward among us. So let me ask you the question, are you in community? Like, do you have other disciples, other followers of Jesus in your life on a daily basis. Jesus was insistent on daily. I mean, if you wanted to follow Jesus, it was, come walk with me. I'm going to another town. But we cannot settle until we have community that knows us and that helps us walk with Jesus. We exist to multiply diverse communities of disciples that exist or that live for the glory of God and the good of the city. 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink, whether it's coffee or tea, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is to say, there is a way to live for God's glory or to live for your own glory or the glory of something else in all of life. And I would say that you need community to help you sort out when you're living for God's glory and when you're not. When I was a new Christian, I stumbled into a church Actually, the guy who planted that church called me last night when we were playing charades, um, which if you didn't make it to game night, you got to come out to game night. Like, it was a lot of fun, um, lots of laughs, um, and Sud and Charlotte did a great job hosting us. And my mentor and friend called me and was like, hey, how's it going? Like, how can I pray for you for what's going on tomorrow morning? And um, one of the things that I learned in the first church I chose to be a part of as a Christian was that God is primary not me. I am not primary. God is primary. And listen to what my mentor, Bob Thune, says about what that means. God is the foundational reality in the universe, the starting point for everything else. The deepest longings of the human soul can only be satisfied as we delight in God's supremacy and rest in his sovereign grace. God is the starting point. It's about God. It's about his glory. It's about his name. It's not about ours. It's about him. We matter deeply to God, but God is primary. Let me show you this from the scriptures. Isaiah 48 says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. How should my name be profaned? This is God, this is God saying, my glory I will not give to another. I will not give my glory away. My glory is the best thing for your good. My glory is the best thing for your joy. You as primary, you as central will always lead to your unhappiness. God is central. God is primary. will always lead to your flourishing. Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable, big Bible words there, are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him? As if God could be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And in case you need the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and 
give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think the biggest threat to us living for God's glory is actually ourselves. I think I'm saying their names right, but Gene Twenge and Keith Campbell wrote nearly a decade ago, based on a number of studies, a book called The Narcissism Epidemic, Living in the Age of Entitlement. And by their research, the epidemic of narcissism rivals obesity in our country. There are that many people, us included, walking around with high levels of self-concern, self-thought, self-exaltation, such that it is epidemic. And when we are overly concerned with self and our glory, how well we look, how well we're doing, it's very hard for us to live for the glory of God. The question is not whether we're entitled, but where? Where do we operate with over self-concern? Where do we operate with eyes that only see me rather than eyes that see the glory of God and Him as primary? Here's the truth. The promise from God's Word, it all comes all the way from, the, from Proverbs. It's, it's, a, it's a wisdom piece, and it's repeated throughout the, Old, or the New Testament. This is what God says. I oppose the proud. I oppose the proud, but I give grace to the humble. The invitation of the Lord is to humble ourselves and to see God's glory as primary and ourselves as secondary, Him as creator and us as creatures. All right, last piece. We exist to multiply diverse communities of disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. Mark chapter 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The good of our city is to love our neighbor. In individual ways, in immediate ways, in systemic ways, to love our neighbor is the way that we seek the good of the city. It's as simple as that. The whole of the law, treating people with justice and equity, reducing oppression, correcting injustice, the whole of the law of the Old Testament that seeks to do that is summed up in one word Jesus says, love your neighbor. That's what it means to embody the Old Testament language of seeking the welfare of the city. It means to seek the peace, to seek the shalom, to seek the flourishing, the wholeness, the intactness of the city and the communities around us. But the threat that we face, friends, is that our approach to the city is not one of love. Our approach to the very city that we live in and inhabit can be not one of love. Like, we might approach our neighborhoods and our city with the posture of despising it. Seriously, we'll look at spots or neighborhoods or blocks or places or restaurants or businesses and go, man, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay away from there. It's not safe there. Something not good is going on there. And we'll withdraw like a turtle away from the city that we live in. Others of us might simply choose just to reflect the city that we live in, functioning more like a chameleon, saying the values, the norms, the habits, the patterns of our neighbors, of our coworkers, we will adopt ourselves. We will live just like the people around us rather than love the people who live near us. And then still others of us live in the city to use the city. It is the cultural center of the upper Midwest. Like, it is, this city drives economically and culturally everything that happens for states around. And the very center of it is a place that's cool. Like, the city has become cool. And we could move then to the city just to use the city for our own advantage. To, to experience the things that the city has to offer. To enjoy the things that the city can give us to consume the city rather than to contribute to the good and the flourishing of the city. We are called to love our neighbors and to seek the welfare of the city. I want to read you a challenging quote from Pastor Rich Perez. This is from his book, Mi Casa, Uptown. He pastors in New York, and he quotes the um, prolific Hispanic historian and theologian Justo Gonzalez. Listen to what Justo says. You don't wait for others as Christians to live by this philosophy of love in order to live by it yourself. It is precisely because others don't live by the vision of love that we will often pay for it. You unmask the evils of society by taking it or taking them upon yourself. This is what happened with MLK. This is what happened with Cesar Chavez. This is what happened with Jesus at the cross. We don't wait for others to embrace the very ethic of loving our neighbors. We take the initiative to love those around us, even though there is a cost that often comes with loving neighbor. Why do you live where you live? Do you live here because you love this place? Because you seek its good? Because you love your neighbor? Jesus is calling you to, and Jesus will empower you to by his very own sacrifice on your behalf, which we've already spent time meditating on, right? Before we um, think about that a little bit more, let me just be real, real clear. What can you do? Like, if you're thinking, like, how do I actually contribute to the mission going forward? What, like, what, what are you asking of me, pastor? Come on. And uh, here's what I would say. Know our mission. Part of the reason why I'm preaching this is so that we as a church would know our mission. We would know how we're to move forward, how we're going to make process in the work that God's called us to do. Know that statement that we exist to multiply diverse communities of disciples. Know that we want to live as if God's primary and we want to live for the good of our neighbors. Know that that's the very heartbeat of us as a body and as a church. Know the mission. And number two, I would say, share the vision. 
share the vision. For those of you who this is like, this is home for you, this is your church home, would you tell friends and family? Like, would you tell neighbors you're a part of this crazy endeavor to start a church? Would you even share some of the vision and say, yeah, it's, it's pre- I like it. Like, they're convinced that Jesus is here and at work among us. Like, they're convinced that a diverse community of disciples is the way that not only the kingdom of God goes forward, but our city begins to flourish. You should come and investigate this. You should meet with Trent. If you don't feel comfortable sharing that vision, man, invite me along for the ride, and I'd love to. Like, you can invite me to lunch with your coworker or coffee with your friend or dinner with your neighbor, or we can have it at my place. It doesn't matter. But, like, would we as a family commit to gathering more folks to the cause, which comes as we share the vision? Share the vision. Know the mission. Share the vision. And then third, offer yourself. You Yeah, you are our greatest asset to going forward in this thing. Would you offer yourself, your time, your talents, your treasure? What what could happen if you were to invest and give a few hours to the advancement of the kingdom of God through Emmanuel Fellowship? What would happen if you said, hey, here's the things that I'm good at, that I'm talented with. I see holes here, 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 and everywhere because they are there. And you said, hey, I've got some resources that could help. Why don't, why, why don't I offer them? How can, how can I get them into the mix of the church? Offer your talents. And then finally, would you offer your treasure? Like the mission of God goes forward by the generosity of God's people. And if you are not giving financially to the work that God's doing among us, can I just ask you to do that, please? To join in that way in the mission of God. If you're doing that now, would you pray about increasing it so that we could keep going forward? Listen, friends, people from all over the Midwest and even spottedly around the country who don't experience any of the blessings of being a part of this community are giving generously financially to see this go forward. And my prayer is that in the coming months, in the coming years, we would shoulder that mantle such that God, through our generosity, would push forward his kingdom in this city. I promise you, you will find joy in giving of your finances. Give in response to what the Lord has given to you because he's given much to us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond. We're going to respond to God, and we're going to do that by singing and worshiping and praying. We're going to respond to God by giving tithes and offerings. There's the old school offering plate right there. Um, There's ways to give online. Um, If you go to our website, emmanuelmpls.org, would you also respond by coming and partaking of communion, the Lord's Supper? One of the reasons that we celebrate this every week is because it's sort of a, a recommitment act, right? It's, it's, it's a recommitment to the very mission of God and a remembrance of the cost that Jesus paid to rescue us and to gather us to himself and then also then to send us on mission for him and his kingdom. So as you come to the communion table this morning, if you believe that Jesus 
lived, lived and loved in a costly way, that he died for your sins and that he rose again, and not just for your salvation, but for the salvation to be extended to all peoples, if you believe that, that means you're a Christian. And I invite you to come and to partake in communion. If you don't yet believe that, we're so glad you're here. So glad you're here. We've prayed and we plan for you to be here. And I would love nothing more than for you to take this time and to honestly engage with God, whom you might not believe exists. But would you let the real God meet the real you, rather than performing some religious ritual that you're unconvinced matters? Rather, engage with the Lord as you're able. And if you want someone to pray with you, I would love to pray with you. Here's how we celebrate communion every week as a church. We come with our hands cupped, a sign that we bring nothing to the table, and it is only grace that saves us, a remembrance that we can do nothing apart from him, and then as we receive the bread into our hands, we take it up, and we act in faith, dipping into the wine, which really is grape juice for us, and represents the shed, body, the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf, and we partake, receiving afresh the grace of God, empowering us to live and to be about the mission of God. If you need a gluten-free option, something that's allergy-free, there's a station that'll be here on the table for you with gluten-free bread and a cup reserved just for you. Um, pray with me, and then let's partake. Father, thank you. Thank you for the, the mission you've put before us, for the vision you've placed on our hearts. And my longing is that it would be increasingly clear, that we would know it, that we would live by it, that we would offer ourselves to it in our time, our talents, and our treasure, and that you, Lord, would be pleased that we, from our very hearts, would live holy for you. God, would you surprise us with the joy that comes even in sacrifices made to advance your kingdom. And would you embolden us to make disciples? Would you embolden us to say, this is our house and we want to gather people to it because there's a party for Jesus happening here weekly that people need to experience. Would you restore us? Would you renew us? Would you revive us as we celebrate communion this morning and respond in song? In Jesus' mighty name we pray.